I want to begin our sermon this morning with a question, and the question is, what do you want? What do you want? That happens to be the first words in red letters in the Gospel of John. In John 1, 37, Jesus is being followed by some of his soon-to-be disciples, and he turns to them and he says, what do you want? I think that King James Version says, what seek ye? <laughs> what do you want? And it's four simple words, but really profound how we choose to answer them, especially if we'll be honest and reflect for a while on what it is that we really want. Tone matters with this question, right? What do you want? Carries a very different meaning than what do you want? And yet I think Jesus meets us each day and asks us that question if we're willing to pause and reflect and consider what what do we want? What do we want most? What do we wake up thinking about? And if we're really honest and really reflective, if we answer that question, what do you want? If you got what you wanted, would you still want what you got? If you got the thing that you want most and you had it, would you still want it or would you then want something else? And as I pondered that question, I was reminded of a time in my life when I had just gone to work for a large, nationally known insurance company, and I was going through their training, and they were helping me set goals and set what I wanted to accomplish in my sales career. And at that time, the big thing for me was the trip. I wanted the trip. If you sold enough insurance, they sent your family on a trip, a nice trip, like Went to Disney World one year, went to Disneyland another year, went to Seattle, went to Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City wasn't the highest on my list. We lived close enough that we'd been there a couple times. But either way, it was a nice trip, and you got nice hotels, and they fed you nice food, and it was worth working for. And I started kind of mid-year, so I got a prorated deal, and I worked my initial market, and I won the trip. And guess what they started talking about as soon as I got home from the trip? Win the trip again. Level up. In fact, just to win the same level trip, they, they made it a little harder each year so that you would sell a little bit more. And if you've ever been in a sales situation, I get it. They've got to do what they got to do. But it got a little harder each year, and they kept encouraging me to level up because, you see, I'd won this trip, but if I worked really hard and a miracle happened, I could win this trip, right? And if I, like, there was one guy in our office that won this trip every year, a full week. One year, they took him to Rome for a week in five-star hotels. I mean, these were nice trips. But over time, the pressure to win the trip, and that it started to kind of fade. And I think at the same time, God was cultivating some different desires in my life, and, and things were starting to change. And by the time I was, I was in my last full year with this company, I was working for the trip, and there was a lot of pressure. Uh, I think management must have gotten something for people that win the trip, because, man, they really wanted me to win that trip. And I don't think it was just so that I could have the satisfaction of going on the trip. I'm just venturing a guess. But I ended up winning the trip, but I, right at the end, you know, June 30th was the cutoff date. That last week, I came home from a sales appointment, and I just realized I had compromised. One of my convictions when I started was that I would not be a high-pressure salesman, and I really needed this sale to get the trip. And there was a heaviness, and the next day I had to call the client back and apologize and say, I got a little higher pressure. If you did not want to do that, you're willing, I want you to know you can... You can back out. I won't turn the app in. You don't, we won't cash the check. And Fortunately, they said, you know, afterwards we kind of talked and we were glad that 
you had been persistent because we felt better after you left than when you had gotten there. And so it all worked out and it was okay. But, you know, for me, I recognized that I had desired this trip more than some other things that I would have said before I valued more. And so that caused me to reflect. And like I said earlier, I really think God was moving me in a different direction and He was moving me into a new place of laying down everything, my life, my will, my desires in order to pursue the path that He had me, and my desires started to change. So our desires and what you want today may not be what you wanted five years or ten years or twenty years or for some of you in different stages of life. What you desire today might be different than what you desired then, and it might be different than what you will desire at some point in the future. But today we're going to be talking about this idea of desiring God above all else, desiring God above all else, that that there should be as followers of Christ, and as we look at one of Jesus' teachings on what it meant to follow Him, that He should be our chief desire, our, our main desire, and that should not change. That should not ebb and flow, and there shouldn't be anything that would supplant that. And so, I wonder if we revisit that question, what do you really desire most? What do you want most? What do you value the most? What do you wake up thinking about? What are you willing to sacrifice for? What do you want most? What do you want above all else? And so, as I've mentioned, we're in a series titled Desiring God. And we're going to be looking at this over the next four weeks. We started last week, kind of, I mentioned Hollywood style, where they show you the main event and then they do some prequels, and then they do some sequels if you've caught any of those, or they want to make another movie because this franchise is going really well, so they just insert something randomly because they can, I guess. I don't know. We're, we're going to be a little more intentional than that. We started with the main event, with Easter. I think we can all agree that the resurrection is kind of the main event in Christianity, and it's the main thing for us to focus and the main thing that would compel us to desire God. So now we're going to look at desiring God from a couple of different angles. This is a prequel that we were in Mark 16 last week. We'll be in Mark 8 today. We'll look at some psalms throughout this series, which are way back uh, prequels. And then we'll look at some of the letters that were written to the New Testament churches uh, that you could consider sequels to this idea of desiring God as we see it fleshed out in Scripture. And so today we're going to be in Mark 8, as I've mentioned. I would encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. If you're in the room here, you can grab a Bible from a seat in front of you. You're welcome to do that. You can turn to page 1566. If you are watching us online, we're so glad that you found us. And we'll have the Scriptures on the screen, but I also encourage you to pick up a Bible, open it up, and you can even write in those things. Did you realize that? I think I I probably spent the first 20 years of my life thinking somebody would take my pencil away if I wrote in my Bible. But you can write in there, and you can make notes, and you can jot things down that you want to come back to, or maybe a Scripture reference or something like that. You can write in there and be engaged and let your Bible be sort of a living, breathing document that moves with you as you move through life with it. But here in Mark chapter 8, we have a scene that really sets the tone for the rest of the gospel of Mark. 
And so if you just look at the paragraph headings in your Bible, you'll see that at the beginning of this chapter, Jesus feeds the 4,000. He uses that as sort of a teachable moment to speak about the leaven or the yeast of the scribes and Pharisees and to watch out for that, that there was a mentality that the scribes and the Pharisees had that was not healthy for people's spiritual growth. It was more focused on the outside, the exterior appearance than the inward reality. It was more focused on religion than a relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, be careful of that. Beware of that. And then there's a really important section. Just right after he heals a blind man, he, he speaks to his disciples and he says, who do people say I am? And Peter identifies him correctly as the Messiah. And this is kind of a big deal because there's been a lot of confusion about who Jesus is and what that means that he's the Messiah. And right on the heels of that, he makes his first uh, teaching to the disciples about his coming death and resurrection. I mentioned this last week that he talks about this three separate times, and he's very explicit. I will go to Jerusalem, I will be betrayed, I will be killed, and I will rise again. And in the middle of saying that, Peter, who just identified him as the Messiah, starts to rebuke Jesus. Like, that's a pretty bold move, isn't it? I don't think I'm there yet. I hope not. But as Peter is rebuking Jesus, Jesus turns around and rebukes him back in the presence of the disciples. And he's really not just rebuking Peter when he says, get behind me, Satan. He's speaking about that mentality which is really we're going to see more about Peter and what Peter wants and the kind of Messiah that Peter desires than it is about Peter kind of saying, Jesus, don't say that. See, it reveals that what Peter desires is a conquering king Messiah who's going to ride in on a stallion, not a donkey, who's going to overthrow Rome and set up a new military kingdom, and that Peter and James and John and the other nine disciples are going to be Jesus' right-hand men, His captains in this new order. And so when Peter rebukes Jesus, he's saying, what you are talking about is not what I desire in my relationship with the Messiah. And that's where Jesus turns, not just to the disciples, but to the crowd in verses 34 through 38. That's our passage for this morning. I'm told, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His Father's glory with the holy angels. And so I want to back up and I want to walk through this, and I want to spend a lot of time on verse 34, uh, because it really is at the heart of the gospel, is this statement Jesus makes, if anyone would come after me. If anyone would, that word would, it can be translated if anyone wishes to come after me, if anyone desires to come after me, if anyone wants to come after me, he must, what? Deny himself. If you want to follow me, if you want to come after me, if you desire that, that's what the word means. It means to want, to intend to, to desire, to wish for to design or to be willing to. 
It's all speaking about value. If anyone values coming after me, there are certain things that must be done. It doesn't say bow your head and pray a prayer. It says deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Interestingly enough, it's the same word where we're talking about if anyone would, if anyone wants to, if anyone desires to. It's the same word as we see in verse 35 when he says, for whoever wants to save his life or her life, whoever wants to do that, whoever desires to do that, same, same word in the original language. And so when he says that these are the requirements, he lays out the requirements, and there's really just three. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. If you want to come after Jesus, if you desire that, if you value that, if you are willing to sacrifice for that, if you intend to do that, here's what it looks like. And when we talk about denying yourself, which is the first of those three requirements, this doesn't mean self-abasement. It doesn't mean what the practice of asceticism that became really popular in certain streams of Christianity where you deny yourself all possible pleasures or enjoyments of any kind. You only eat bland food and just enough to sustain life. It, it, he's not talking about that type of self-denial. He's not talking about wearing hair shirts. I, I read about these monks that would wear these hair shirts, and I mean, I'm like, my goodness, I get one hair in my collar and I'm a wreck until I get that thing out of there. I can't imagine a whole shirt made of hair, which is really just designed to, to be a torture device, basically to pick at you all the time so that you're denying yourself any pleasure or comfort whatsoever. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And he's not talking about martyrdom necessarily as an end in and of itself. If that is where things end up, you gladly follow him to your death. But he's really talking about the surrendering of our will. When we deny ourselves, we're denying the ego. We're denying our self-determination, our self-direction. We're denying that part that says, I'm going to have it my way. And this is hard for us today because we're marketed to all the time to have it your way, to, to have what you want, when you want, how you want it. And you are the focus of the majority of the advertisements that you see. And so it becomes very, very easy to be lulled into this idea or this mindset that really is about me and securing my preferences and getting what I want. And we all listen to the same radio station, WIIFM, what's in it for me all day long. That's a joke. Uh, it's a some people call pastoral humor an oxymoron. I think we just proved that that was the case, but maybe you were just catching up. But either way, he's talking about the surrendering of the will, the surrendering of the desire completely to Jesus, and I would add repeatedly to Jesus wasn't a one-and-done deal for me. I don't know about you. Most people that I talk to, this is something that has to happen more than once. In fact, in Luke's gospel, when he translates this verse or when he shares this verse in Luke 9.23, he adds the word daily to the Scripture. If anyone would come after me, he must, take up his, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's a repetition that needs to take place. This isn't something that just happens once and then we're set. We deny ourselves. We take up our cross. That's kind of the second one. That's, that's an instrument of death to his audience. That when we're talking about a cross, today we think of a piece of jewelry most often or a piece of art on a wall. But when he said this 2,000 years ago to a Jewish audience, the cross was an instrument of death. 
I think it was Max Lucado who likened it to if we all had electric chairs on necklaces around our necks. The cross has been transformed into the symbol of the resurrection and the symbol of Jesus' death on the cross for us as well it should be. But at the time that they heard this, that wasn't the case. And so perhaps for us it would be better to say, must take up their electric chair daily and follow me. Because it was an instrument of death. It was a reminder of the death to self and that we would take that up daily and follow him, follow Jesus. One pastor pointed out that our prayers change when we deny ourselves, when we lay our will down, when we surrender our will to Christ. Our prayers change from, God, bless my program. Help me. I need this. I need that. I need to go here. I need to do these things. They need to work. I need you to bless my program. And they change from that to, God, give me your program. Show me where I'm supposed to go. Give me what I need when I get there. Help me to be in step with you rather than I'm going over here and I need some stuff to work, so please come on with me. It's a totally different posture of prayer when we've denied ourselves, when we've taken up our cross, and when we begin to follow Him rather than getting Him to tag along with us. And so we begin to replace self-determinism when we deny ourselves. We replace that with obedience to and dependence on Christ and Christ alone. We lay down ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow Him, which means that we join with Him, we side with Him, we accompany Him wherever He is going. We try to figure out what is God doing in this world and how can I be a part of it? How can I come alongside? How can I add my gifts, my abilities, my talents, my time, my energy, my resources to what God is doing in this world? And I saw an interesting example of this this past week, and I was very, very proud of our young, uh, young people. In our student ministries, there's a student leadership team, and it's four middle school, high school students that make extra sacrifices, extra time, extra energy, extra devotion to provide leadership to the youth ministry, that it's not just Pastor Zach and the adult leaders, that there's a student leadership team. And this Wednesday was student leadership team takeover. So it was basically like, Pastor Zach turns the lights on, and he's out of there. And the service belongs to them, and they do every aspect of it. And I watched four young people in their teens get up in front of their peers and share very openly and honestly and transparently with their peers. And they talked about the gospel, and they broke down one of Jesus' parables, and they talked about things like regret and discipline and temptation and their identity in Christ. And it was powerful to behold, to see them getting up in front of their peers. It wasn't like they came and spoke to the children's ministry. These are the people they see in the high school hallways, and they see on the band practice fields, and they see throughout their their daily lives. And I wondered how many of us would welcome the same opportunity to get up in front of our co-workers or our family and share openly and honestly and transparently about things like the gospel and temptation, and discipline, or regret, or our identity in Christ. It was a powerful thing to behold, and it reminded me that the central verse in our student ministry is Luke 9.23. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, and do it 
daily. And so verse 34 really is the heart of the gospel. It really is crucial that we understand this because it's the gospel according to Jesus. These are red letters. These are things that Jesus is saying as he is helping people understand what is going to happen to him and what kind of Messiah he is going to be. Not the conquering king, but the suffering servant. Not the one who eradicates Rome and suppresses Rome and kicks Rome out, but the one who dies on a Roman cross at the hands of the people he was sent to save. This is revolutionary stuff. It's a gospel of self-denial. It's a gospel of taking up your own cross and following him. And so I apologize if you heard a different gospel, a gospel that was more about you, that was more about feelings, that was more about Jesus coming into your life and making your life a little bit better, kind of like the cream in your coffee. I'm sorry if that's the gospel you heard, but I want to set the record straight, especially if you heard anything like that from me, that Jesus is crystal clear. This is all about him. And we are to desire him above all else and to value him above all else. So if you're checking your watch, I'm not going to spend as much time on the next three verses each as I spent on that verse. Maybe, maybe we'll pick things up a little bit. But I really want to make sure we understand this because Jesus gives us the why behind the what in verse 35. In verse 35, we continue and he tells us why this matters so much. He says, the way things are set up in this world, if whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. That's the way that God has created the world to function, that whoever wants to save his life or her life will lose it. If you want to take your life into your own hands, you'll lose your life eventually. But whoever is willing to lose their life for his sake, it's a little play on words, whoever is willing to surrender, whoever is willing to step into self-denial for his sake, and you lay down your life, he gives you one that's so much better and is better for eternity. And so when we surrender, when we release, when we lay down, when we stop clinging to our own lives, it's then that we find the life that is truly life. It's then that we find the life, the abundant life, the rich and satisfying life that he came for us to have. We don't get it by clinging to our own lives. We don't get it by trying to hoard our time, our energy, our resources, or to use those to meet our own desires. We do that by denying ourselves, by taking up our cross, by following him, following his example, aligning with him. And he clarifies this a little bit with a couple of questions in verse 36 and 37. What good is it for man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? When he says gain the whole world, he's talking about everything this world has to offer. And there, this is especially prevalent in America, this idea that you can, you can have it your way. You can work hard. You can, you can buckle down. You can make sacrifices to gain the whole world, to have everything this world has to offer. A big house, nice cars, nice travel, nice vacations, nice food to eat, all the things that this life can offer. He says, what good is it to get all of that and yet forfeit your soul, that part of you which is eternal? In verse 37, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The only thing you can do is lay it down and allow him to come in and to lead you so that you will follow him. And in doing this, in these two verses, in verse 36 and 37, he makes a contrast between 
temporary benefits with permanent costs and temporary costs with permanent benefits. Which do you think is the better deal? To pursue the things of this world and to make permanent sacrifices, eternal sacrifices for temporary benefits in this life, or to sacrifice in this life, to lay down, to deny yourself in this life and make temporary sacrifices for permanent benefits. It's not a trick question. And so he's illustrating this for us. And then finally in verse 38, he gives a final warning and clarifies the stakes really couldn't be higher. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes into his Father's glory with the holy angels. He's speaking about the judgment day. Whatever you want, I guarantee you don't want Jesus to be ashamed of you on judgment day. You want him to step in front of you and say, this one's mine. Go ahead and take the penalty for their sins from my account. I'll wipe their balance clean. You don't want Jesus ashamed of you on judgment day. You don't want to be ashamed of him in this life. You want to deny yourself and whatever it would cause you to be afraid to identify with him, to follow after him, to deny yourself, to take up your cross. You want Jesus to look at you and say, that one's mine. I'll pay their debts. Put it on my tab. Because he is willing and able to do that. And so we return to our question, what do you want? What are you seeking What do you value most? And there's a funny thing. There's a couple little shortcuts that really help us figure this out quickly. If you're questioning what you value most or what you really want, there are two places you can look that will tell you very clearly. Look at your calendar. Look at your bank account. I almost said checking account, but there's a whole generation of people that don't know what a checking account is. (laughs) They don't know what a checkbook is. But they have bank accounts, and they Venmo, and they PayPal, and they do everything out of their bank accounts. You look at how you spend your money, and you look at how you spend your time, and you will see very quickly what you value most. What matters most to you? What do you want most? Your checkbook won't lie. Your calendar won't lie. Where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your money? Where are you spending your energy and your talents? And does your daily, weekly, monthly habits and expenses reflect what you say you value most? Because your behaviors will reflect what you truly value most. And it gets quiet about this point because there's a little wrestling. Well, how do I know when I've done enough. How do I know? Well, what are you waking up thinking about? What are you waking up desiring most? There's some biblical guidelines. I think you absolutely should have daily time with God. And if you're spending five to ten minutes with God and an hour with whatever news outlet you choose to, to be informed with, there could be a lack of balance there. If you spend more on your car payment or your house payment than you do on your tithing to your church, you could say, hmm, what do I value most? And there's some really easy ways to understand or to look at what needs to change. Because there's a little bit of a spoiler alert. It's not your time. It's not your money. It's not your stuff. It's all His. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. 
the world and everyone in it, even you and the breath that you draw, it belongs to God. It's all His. And so when we look at how we're using what He's entrusted to us, it becomes a very quick way to understand what we value most. And I want to close with a psalm that was written by a man who is described as, as a man after God's own heart. You see, King David got that title early in life, and he wrote a lot of psalms, but there's one in particular that I think speaks into this subject, and it happens to have been in our Banding Together reading in the last week, and so I want to share Psalm 62, verses 1 through 2 and 5 through 8 with you, because in this passage that we'll look at, David clarifies what he values most, clarifies what's calling the shots. And so in Psalm 62, we read these words from King David, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. And then he addresses his enemies for a couple of verses, but he comes back in verse 5, and he actually addresses the next verse or two to himself. He says, find rest, O my soul, in God alone, not in my palace, not in my possessions, not in my acclaim, not in my reputation. Find soul, rest, my soul, in God alone. Why? Because my hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. And in verse 8, he switches, and now the audience is all of us. Now the audience is the congregation. It's those assembled in worship. And he says, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. You see, David desired God above all else. And if you're familiar with the story of David, you know he didn't get it right 100% of the time. He failed big on more than one occasion. He really messed things up a couple times. But he always came back. He always humbled himself. He always repented when he needed to repent, and he finished well. He stayed humble and surrendered to God, and he kept pursuing Him. And so when we add... Jesus' words to David's words, we come up with the bottom line for this message, something along the lines of desiring God above all else is a daily decision. It is not based on emotion. It is not a feeling. God doesn't command us to feel things in Scripture. He commands us to do things. He commands us to love one another. He commands us to praise Him. He commands us to sacrifice ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses and to follow Him. And desiring God above all else is a daily decision. It was David who said, trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your hearts to Him. Desire fellowship and relationship with Him because He is our refuge. And so as we respond in faith to the word that was spoken today, you might be asking yourself, well, what do, I, what do I do, Pastor Mark? I think you honestly examine. You look at your checking account. You look at how you spend your time. And you maybe make a change. 
I told the first service you might need to cut your cable so you'll have more time for prayer and worship and you'll have more money to give to God. That's a great start. I hope nobody here works for the cable company. They'll be upset looking for a different church. Or maybe it's this little black box that I stare at all the time. Maybe I need to put that thing away. Or you can put app limits. You can put time limits. And when that app limit comes up, you set the thing down and you spend more time in worship and prayer. Or you, you get out your journal and you spend time cultivating your relationship with God, cultivating a deeper desire with God. I can follow, there's even apps that tell you how much time you spend and how many times you get that silly thing out. And I can track my spiritual temperature oftentimes with how much time I'm spending looking at that screen. Because when that's going up, my spiritual life is going down. And when my spiritual life is going up, I'm not as interested in what the little black box has to tell me. And so there are small things that you can do that make a big difference in this area. And if you struggle in the area of giving, I would encourage you to start with percentage giving. Pick a percentage that represents a sacrifice to you. And then be intentional as additional income comes in or as God shows things that maybe you really don't need to have as a part of your finances, you get rid of those and you increase the percentage until you get to at least the 10% mark. That was sort of the biblical standard. The New Testament talks more about generosity than the 10%. And so people think, well, that means I don't have to give 10%. Well, my book, Generous, is more than the minimum. Just a thought. But you ask God to show you, and I believe he wants you to know this at least as much, if not more, than you want to know it yourself. And maybe your role is to come alongside somebody and encourage somebody and, and speak life into them. Maybe there's something you need to repent of. Maybe there's something you need to cancel. Maybe you need to reallocate time or resources or energy. But, but maybe you are desiring God and, and you are, He is first in your life and you desire Him above all else. Then I guarantee you He wants you to share what you have learned and how you have gotten to that point with somebody else. This is called disciple-making, making other people who desire God above all else. He said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Those are our marching orders, to go and love people into the kingdom of God. And so whatever your response is, I hope and pray that you'll respond in faith, that you'll respond open-handedly and wholeheartedly to God today. And we'll continue to examine this. We'll talk about what it looks like. How do you desire God when you don't desire God? <laughs> How do you desire God when you don't feel it? What does it mean to desire God's goodness to be in you and come into the world through you? What does it mean to cultivate or direct your desires? These are all things that we can talk about. But for today, ask yourself, what do I want more than anything else? And then adjust accordingly. Heavenly Father, will you speak to us in these moments? We thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you and praise you for your spirit's presence among us. We thank you and praise you for the opportunity to gather freely in your name and to sing your praises and to hear from your word. We ask you, Lord, to change our hearts, change our minds, redirect our thoughts. Show us where we've gotten off course. Show us where we've become distracted. Show us where competing desires have crowded you out and help us. Help us to make some changes, to be different tomorrow because we came to church today. Help us to desire you more tomorrow and next week and next month than we do today. Help us, Holy Spirit, to respond in faith. Give us the courage 
conviction, a commitment to deny ourselves, to take up our own crosses and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.